Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're at today. How many of you were once nine years old? Okay. I was too. And uh, I was at a church. My parents took, us, took my sister and I to church. And as a nine or ten-year-old kid, I was one of those powerfully shy ones that would hide behind mom if you ever tried to talk to me or, or look at me. And somehow or another, my preacher convinced my mom, who then made me, get on stage and recite, having memorized, the armor of God from Ephesians 6. All I remember was before church, wrestling with my mom tooth and nail to get a suit of foil-laden cardboard all over me, with, even with the red feather in the top of the cardboard foil cap. And I was up there, knees shaking, voice quivering, and I tried to recite every piece, you know, the belt of truth tied around my waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, the shoes of peace, you know, that kind of thing. And I tried to add a flare of drama when I held up my big shield with which to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then I tried to get my, my cardboard sword out of my belt and I couldn't get it out. And it was, and the sword, and the sword, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I just, I didn't take the laughter from the congregation. I mean, some of you are laughing at me right now. I, as a 10-year-old, I didn't know if that was laughing at me or laughing for me, kind of nervous laughter, you know. I didn't want to think that they were laughing at me. These people were supposed to love me. I didn't know as a kid how to discern, oh, that's so cute, that's so wonderful, I wish I could do that, from that kid's really messing it up right now and <laughs> I wish he would leave. I didn't know how to discern that as a 10-year-old. How does a kid tell the difference? I had stuttered, I had forgotten something, I struggled with my props, I was embarrassed, I wanted to crawl under the pew and run out, or run out of the sanctuary. I was completely covered in the cardboard tinfoil armor of God, but I was scared to death, standing in front of people who were supposed to be the first to love and care for me. Have you ever been there? At that age, I loved Jesus, and I loved my church. I'd been buried in the waters of baptism. My, my sins were forgiven. I tried to tell the truth. I tried to be nice to my sister. I tried not to fight on the playground. I was afraid of whatever flaming arrows might be coming at me from the evil one. So I, tried, I wanted to have faith, and I had no idea what righteousness was, but I thought I could get some someday. Honestly, the whole thing, um, the Bible, uh, is overwhelming. But I trusted my parents, and I trusted my Sunday school teacher, and I trusted that God loved everybody, and so he probably loved me too. I had a child's understanding, and I had a child's faith. And it's something I came to find out that later that Jesus rather pleased with that kind of thing. And he smiles at me, not with a smile of pity or nervous laughter. It's a loving, affirming smile. That's a father's pride for a son or a daughter. And that was a good start. But I'm not 10 years old anymore. So what do I do with this now? 
What do we do with the armor of God? Let's look at Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, he's wrapping it up. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Be strong in the Lord, then. It might be better translated, be made strong in the Lord. It's a gift. The strength of the Lord comes from the Lord. It's not something you have to muster up the courage to go get, get into something. Having, not having strength is human nature, but giving, being given strength is what this is all about. Be made strong in the Lord in the strength of His power. It's almost redundant, but it just gets the point across. No other strength will do. Not ours, not yours, not somebody else's. You, we need to be made strong in the strength of the Lord. So it's not, it's, it's not anything else that's going to get us through this. No other strength is adequate for the task of standing firm against the enemy. And who is the enemy? Well, it's not the person sitting beside you. It's not the person across the room. It's not your boss. It's not that employee. It's not that person across the street from, you know, which you disagree with. It's not that person on Facebook that you can't stand. That's not your enemy. Your enemy doesn't live across the ocean you know, in a different military uniform. That's not your enemy either. Your enemy, he says right here, is, it gives quite the description, doesn't it? When it comes to working out, I, I have, I've told this to, um, to couples coming in for premarital counseling, and I've heard this from, for different families. It's good advice. When you're working out a disagreement, with a child or with a spouse or with a parent, it's a helpful way to think that it's two of you against the problem, not you against the other person. It's two of you against the problem. That gives a bit of a unified front that I'm on your side. I care about you and I love you. I just don't agree with the issue that we're talking about right now. I don't agree with your take on it and you don't agree with my take on it. That doesn't make us enemies. That makes us two human beings that need to work something out together. And many times the problem is sin. It's just plain sin or the temptation to sin. Pride, ego, selfishness, the need to be right. I don't know if anybody needs to be right in here. <laughs> um, maybe it's a lack of love. Who's the real enemy anyway? Well, it's the ones who entice us away from our identity in Christ, the ones who whisper in our ear the accusations of the enemy. And Paul has many ways to describe these spiritual beings. He says there are rulers, they are authorities, they are powers in this dark world, they are spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Why doesn't anybody just ever think, why doesn't he just say the devil? I mean, why didn't he just say demons? I mean, 
those are words we have categories for. Most of us, we can get our brains wrapped around, well, there's the top dog devil, you know, with the capital D or whatever he is or it is. Sometimes we call it Satan. That's not a real proper name. It's just another name. Um, and then we have all of this, the category that we have for the, all these underlings, the lower management, you know, evil people or evil spiritual beings. The Bible has a word called, you know, demons. That's a real biblical word. But for Paul, it's more than that. And for other biblical authors, they are numerous. They have authority on this earth and in the skies, even to the point of geographical boundaries. Let me just bend your mind a little bit here because it bends mine. If we take the story of the Tower of Babel seriously, if we take Old Testament texts like Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32, there are spiritual beings of evil in the earthly and heavenly realms that have geographical assignments. And they're rebellious. Rebelling against God. Which is why in Genesis 12, God chooses Abram then eventually to be a blessing to all nations. All nations are being brought to the one supreme, true God. They have power and they are forces of wickedness. This is a tension we face as Christians. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that evil is defeated, evil personified in these demons, in, in the devil himself, the dragon who was going to be cast into the lake of fire. We understand this. We read the end of the book, and they lose. Jesus wins. There's some reason to believe that they know this too. Revelation 12, the dragon waged war against the seed of the woman's offspring, the church. We're being fought against. Just because they know that they're going to lose doesn't mean they've given up the fight. There's a battle going on that Jesus participated in fully in his ministry. He fought against and cast out demons from people. And he forced the kingdom of God into these dark places and illuminated these places and people in the process. And so we know at the cross, Satan was crushed. The battle isn't over until he returns. And we have to know how to fight we can't be lulled to sleep into thinking there's no battle going on. We have to learn how to use the gear, the implements, the tools, the armor of God. No soldier goes into battle in shorts and a t-shirt. No right-thinking football coach would send a player in with just a helmet on. You have to be clothed. You have to be fitted you have to take these things up and put them on. Paul borrows imagery from the book of Isaiah. This isn't something he thought up. He was well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he's looking at Scriptures in Isaiah that describe the Messianic King, Jesus. Let's look at a few of these from Isaiah chapter 11. Speaking of the coming Messiah, Isaiah said, He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. Good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. There's a gift, there's a mix here, there's a connection between 
a messenger, and peace. Shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. And Isaiah 59, verse 17, speaking of God himself, he put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself, get this, with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. Some of your Bibles say zeal. I can't emphasize this enough. This is maybe a new thought, but these pieces of armor that Paul lists here, they belong to God. He wears them. Isaiah has already said God's outfitted himself in this breastplate, in this helmet, in this cloak, in these shoes. And God, in his outfittedness, says, Here, you put these on too. Let me give you these implements that, are, that belong to me that you can use too. He's giving them to us who trust in him and follow him in order to do what he does in this world. What did Jesus come here to do? Well, many of us would say that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world and he's the Savior, and that's true. But the biblical authors also answer the question, say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, where it says when people do right, it shows they are righteous even as Christ is righteous. Christ is righteous. He gives that righteous to us. But when people keep on sinning and make a habit of sinning, it shows they belong to the devil who's been sinning since the beginning. Here's, here's the answer to the question. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. And if Jesus told us to follow him, if he told his followers to do as he had done, in fact, he said they would do things even greater than he did. It makes sense that we would have a hand in to be active participants in destroying the works of the devil. In fact, it can't be made any more plain than what Paul said in Romans 16, 20, where he says, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Whose feet are they? Your feet, my feet. God will crush Satan underneath our feet. And immediately I get this picture of when my kids were little and I was trying to help them walk. And I was leaning over. You know how parents do this? They lean over and the kid has a hold of your arms and you get their feet and you just do this and this and this. Oh, there's a bug. Oh. You, know, just, you move the feet, you, you train the feet to do something that they don't normally do, which is walk. But God has authority over the follower of Jesus. We have submitted, Lord, um, we follow his lordship. And if we are doing the things that Jesus did, somehow or another, we have a hand, we have a foot in destroying the devil's work. How can we be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power to put on the full armor of God and be prepared for when the day of evil comes? When does the day of evil come? Well, today, probably tomorrow. I would assume Tuesday would be a day of evil too. Maybe, maybe they'll take Wednesday off. I, I don't know, but I, somehow I doubt it. There's evil every day. You've seen it. I see it. And so we've got to put on the truth. We start with putting on the truth. God gives us his truth. 
in his word. The belt of truth holds the garments together. It's where the sheath for the sword goes. God is truth. He cannot lie. There is no falsehood in him. So when we're called to put off falsehood, we're told to put on truth, which is his word. He is truth. Put on the truth. We're supposed to put on righteousness, God's righteousness, as a covering. This righteousness through what Christ accomplished on the cross, the body armor, the breastplates, covers all the vital organs. Paul says it elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober-minded, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we put on God's truth, we put on God's righteousness, and we put on God's gospel of peace. We've got to put on the shoes. You don't go in to battle barefoot. There's been a lot of people that have gone in to battle in the name of the Lord and they forgot their shoes. And what happens when you step on a Lego in the middle of the night? You get angry pretty fast, don't you? You've got to have some covering for your feet because your feet are tender and they need protection. But you've got to take that gospel of peace into some pretty prickly areas and that requires some peace on our part. Faith is a gift from God. We have to pick that up and use it. Our active trust in God will provide a defense when the evil one shoots these flaming arrows of temptation and accusation and doubt. And salvation is a gift from God that we've got to put on. It covers the head. It keeps the brain intact so that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. It protects the face so we can see the world through the lens through the face mask, through the visor that is our identity as a saved child of God. I think many times, for the young Christian, especially the new believer, the first piece of armor that's given is the helmet, the helmet of salvation. Okay, look, I am a Christian. I am saved. Look at that. I got a helmet of salvation. All right, let's go out the door. Wait a minute. You got all kinds of other stuff to put on here. Nope, I'm good. I'm out of here. And so they run on the field. Ready to play. Ready to play. Put me in, coach. All I got is a helmet on. I'm going I'm to get hurt out here if I try to play the game with no pads. But I got a helmet on. And I don't know if it's because we're not told. We're not, it doesn't, nobody explained it to us. We have to grow in our relationship. We have to be outfitted and disciplined in our approach to the Christian life. We need more than just salvation. We have to grow in righteousness. We have to grow in peace. We've got to take on this idea that there's a battle going on and we need protection and an offensive weapon, which is the Word of God. Many places in Scripture, God is described as having a sword coming out of His mouth. Jesus in Revelation 1 is portrayed this way. God's Word in Hebrews 4, described as a sharp, two-edged sword, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, emotions and intellect, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And using a sword takes time and practice, otherwise you hurt yourself or somebody else. You don't get good at sword play until you become a dedicated student from somebody who's been at it a lot longer than you have. It's the only offensive weapon. And it's the only one you need. Learn it, love it, live it. You gotta suit up. We gotta suit up. And lastly, he says, pray. Pray for me. Pray in the Spirit 
on all occasions. There's nothing too small that you can't pray about. All kinds of prayers and requests. In other words, pray without ceasing. He says that somewhere else. Pray like breathing. Be alert, he says. Keep on praying. Always keep on praying for all the saints. Don't get spiritually sleepy. Boy, this is so easy to do. We just get to where, we just kind of get complacent. We just forget there's a battle going on. We need to be praying. A lot of you have done this Praying for the One card. I got 112 cards. And um, if, if it's something that you didn't get done and you want to do it, we can, I can get you a card. They're not in your bulletin this week, but I can get you one. We can, we can include that in the display that we're going to make. But I've talked a lot about Praying for One. And it's, ideally, it's somebody that you should know personally. It's somebody you should have contact with on a regular basis. And it's, not, it's okay to even talk to them about it. Like, you know what? I've been praying for you. I've done it. I've pr- I promise that I've prayed for you. You, know, you may not want to do that right away. I don't know if it's relationship is appropriate, if you trust them, if it's not. I don't know. Let the Spirit tell you when to tell that person when you've been praying for them, how you've been praying for them. But the point isn't, necessarily i mean we need to pray for those that are sick and battling illness but that's not exactly what this is the point of praying for the one it's not just somebody you want god to bless and be happy pray for them but that's not the primary purpose here the primary purpose i've tried to outline is three things for the lost to be saved for the saved to be discipled and then maybe even then discipled to be deployed this is prayers for one person to to gain progress and growth and maturity in Christ, especially if they're not even know Jesus yet, to pray for their salvation. And I've talked about praying for Scripture. And I want to I want to spend some time, maybe not every week, but a lot of times, I want to, to spend time in here praying for your one. And I want to pray Scripture. I want to learn how to pray Scripture. And so in your Bibles, flip over a few pages to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We'll finish our time praying. And if, if you're relatively new, if this is your first time here and, and um, this is a, a new idea about praying for one, I just want you to ask God, who do you want me to pray for right now? Who in my family? Who in my workplace? Who, in my, who on my street, on my block? Who do you want me to pray for right now? In this particular section of Scripture, Titus chapter 3, the first five verses, I'm not going to read per se, but I want you to follow along. I'm going to try and pray this scripture. And as you follow, either read along and pray along. It's interesting how this turns out because the scripture is living and active. So we're going to pray. Dear God and Father, remind us all that we need to be subject to the rulers and authorities in our own land and to be respectful. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be ready to do whatever is good, to speak evil of no one. God, guard our tongues to be peaceable people. Help us to be considerate and to be humble toward all people. Father, we're, we're taking time to pray for the one that we've been praying for, understanding that at one time we too were foolish 
earlier in our lives, Father, we, we confess that we were disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And we lived in, in malice. We wanted hurt to come to people, and, and we envied and we hated people. But I thank you for the kindness and the love of God our Savior. And when he appeared, he saved me. Not because I'd done anything good, but because of your mercy. And I would pray for that one that I'm praying for, the one that, are, that we right now are praying for, Father, that you would save them, that they would see the kindness and the love that you have given through Jesus. And that they wouldn't rely on trying to be a good person, but rely on your mercy, that you saved us through the washing of rebirth. You saved us by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I want them to experience that too. I want, I want them to be poured out on generously through Jesus Christ. That it might be that they never have sinned because of your grace poured on them and that we might come together inheriting the hope of eternal life. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you take just a couple minutes, and not that you just read the Scripture, but that the Scripture reads you, and you let that flow in your prayers, it can bring life and vocabulary and, and a Holy Spirit-directed kind of prayer for your one or for anything. It can, it can liven up your praise and thanks time. It can, it can give depth to your confessions of sin. And it can bring restoration to relationships. I hope that, that as you go out into whatever day of evil that might be facing you, whether it's that kid at school that just won't leave you alone, whether it's a relationship that's strained with a family member or with a person that you're working with, that you would, you would not see them as the enemy, but that you would see the, the enemy as the enemy and you would put on the armor and be able to fight a good fight. He is defeated, but he's not altogether vanquished. We get the privilege of taking part in the battle that Jesus ultimately wins. Let's pray together. God, thank you for bringing us together for the purpose of just thanking you for your gift. The gift of this armor that we get to participate in the battle. It's not pretty and it's not always fun. But there are people out there who are dying and are headed for eternal destruction if we don't love them enough to say something. Help us to fight best on our knees in prayer as we pray for them. Keep us faithful in it, in Jesus' name. Amen.